Hmm. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I thank Ella for that. You know, the hymns provide a, a rich resource uh, for worship. Uh, encourage you to, if you don't often use a hymnal or I guess look at your device uh, with relationships to hymns and spiritual songs that you'd really make that a part of your weekly habit. Um, music has a, a great power to, to help us. Uh, gives us some real good encouragement with relationship to our spiritual growth and uh, this one in particular, if you're not really comfortable praying yet, if you're a new believer in the Lord and you're still working out, you know, formulating words, I know that can be a bit of a challenge. Uh, Come Thou Fount is a tremendous, just simple prayer. And I think it reflects well uh, the humility that we should have in prayer and really the longing of our heart and the reality of our heart, prone to wander. We feel that, don't we? And we can tend to leave God's care. And we long to be sealed. Uh, permanently in our walk with God. Uh, I'm afraid that's not going to be our reality necessarily until we see Jesus, but uh, our reality is progressive, but uh, it certainly articulates the heart, I think, of true believers. So I'd encourage you to avail yourself of a hymnal. Uh, if you're going to take one home, just ask Pastor Mike. I don't know how that all works, but I'm sure he'd be delighted to allow you to use one of those. Uh, but yeah, it'd be good to make those a part of your worship. So thank you, Ella. I really appreciate that. So this morning, as have already been mentioned, we've, uh, we're going to be enjoying the Lord's table together. And uh, hopefully you've gotten your, your, your uh, what would you call this, pandemic, uh, uh, COVID slash elements. And uh, if you haven't gotten those, uh, they're available in the back. And I think Mr. Glenn and maybe some of the other uh, ushers, if you want to just raise your hand, and they can probably bring them to you if you need one. Uh, I've got two. Uh, I had the unfortunate uh, thing happen to me. I, I, I think I was leading communion once, and in my other Bible, I, I was you know struggling to get the second thing open, and it spilled all over 1 Corinthians 11. So that's all, I suppose, appropriately stained with the blood of the Lord. <laughs> And uh, I'll never forget that. But that kind of sticks together there, those pages. So, so hopefully you'll be a little more skilled. We're hopefully getting a little better at this. Um, and, uh, but more importantly, we really want to understand what we're doing here, don't we? And we really want to understand um, the, a couple really uh, true introductory ideas. The first introductory idea is the Lord's table is really the property of the local New Testament church. Um, you, you don't want to be like me. Uh, I was a guy who had some responsibilities at the Christian college I attended, and I was in charge, and, and I tried to celebrate the Lord's Supper in my dormitory room. And, uh, of course, that was my physical education background. We, we weren't given a whole lot of information about really where the authority comes from for celebrating the Lord's Supper, and that comes from the congregation of God's people who, who have gathered and have duly appointed leadership. Uh, and uh, so don't do that. Uh, remember, this is the property of the local church. Uh, if you're here and you're not a part of, a, of the Lord's church, well, by what we mean by that is his assembly, those who have been called out, those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, 
uh, we would encourage you during the time that we actually partake of the elements to consider uh, the table. What we do at the table as the church is we proclaim the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And more specifically, its significance. Uh, so we would encourage you, maybe you don't, there's no pressure here to partake of the elements. You don't have to do that. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. We know that in some other religious traditions, there's pressures to have to take uh, the elements because if you don't, you're kind of in trouble, eternal trouble. Uh, and uh, we, we would disagree with our friends who have that view of the Lord's Supper, um, uh, that, that it's, uh, it communicates the, the verbiage we would say is it somehow communicates grace. Uh, we would say that there's no mystical communication of special spiritual powers at this time that somehow saves us or somehow puts us into a better footing with the God of heaven. Uh, we don't hold to that. So it's okay not to partake. It's, it's okay to, to try to understand more accurately what's going on here at the table and what its function is. Um, so if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, we would encourage you when we get to the time of partaking of the elements, just to leave the elements set uh, and perhaps open up to John chapter 3. I think our pastor often encourages us to do that and to consider what in fact or who in fact the Lord Jesus Christ is and the substitutionary nature of his dying on the cross for your sins. And uh, I guess that's one of the uh, clear identifying marks of our understanding of the Lord's Supper. It's, it's not, like I said, it doesn't communicate grace. And for those of us who truly have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, we don't worry about uh, our ultimate outcome. There's, the Bible says there's no condemnation. So in our spiritual life, we're not always under the auspices of, oh, am I going to make it? Am I condemned? Am I not condemned? Oh, my goodness, I've got to go do some more things and things and things. That's not what we believe the Bible teaches. The amazing thing that the Bible teaches is that when you are born again at the very beginning of your spiritual life, there is no condemnation you ever have to worry about again. So the rest of your spiritual life is lived not with the question of condemnation. It's lived with the question of how can I please the Lord more today because he's so amazing uh, for what he did for me at the cross. And we possess that. And so we enjoy that assurance. And uh, so we're going to talk a little bit uh, more about that. So, so the first really point by way of introduction is that what we're going to do here is really the property of those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus alone, who have gathered together uh, underneath the auspices of really what we call organized authority in the New Testament. That's uh, pastors, and, and we've been elected by you all. Uh, we don't have, like some of our religious friends, we don't have um, uh, popes or anything to that matter uh, in terms of authority. We believe God's word is our final authority. And... Uh, Elders are only good insofar as they're following the authority of the Word of God. And uh, so we rely on the congregation of people who are spirit-filled people, who are reading their Bibles and are growing more deeply in their understanding of it, uh, to really be the source of authority. And uh, we certainly represent you as we try to do the work of the church together underneath our mission. Uh, that's to glorify God by evangelizing the lost and equipping the saints with the goal of Christ-likeness. 
So with those introductory matters in mind, let's pray, and we'll have a few more comments here, and then in about, oh, 20 or so minutes, we'll actually partake of the Lord's Supper together, okay? Father, we thank you so much for uh, the joy of worshiping on the first day of the week. We thank you for the joy of gathering around uh, the Lord's table. We don't have a physical table in our presence here this morning like we normally would, uh, but we thank you that um, it's certainly not about a physical table, uh, and, but it is about a company of people who are thoughtful about uh, their relationship with you, Lord Jesus, and, and their responsibility to one another as the church. So I pray that you would help us to uh, more clearly understand what we have in our hands, uh, why we have it in our hands, and, and how it can encourage us as we continue to move forward in our walk with you. So help us, dear Spirit of God. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your precious name we pray these things. Amen. So you have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians 11, and we're gonna, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the, the, the section. This is probably a familiar section for those of us who attend church on a regular basis. I think here at Grace Church of Menor, uh, we celebrate the Lord's table once a month. Um, certainly, I think in the history of the early New Testament church, they probably celebrated it much more frequently. Uh, given the context of 1 Corinthians 11, we understand that apparently they celebrated it uh, along with a love feast, it was often called. So there was uh, a, a more of a fellowship, if you will, at that point. We, we certainly, uh, when things are more normal, we, we had lots of love feasts, right, in our church calendar when we would be doing that. Uh, but they sort of organized in the, uh, the early church a uh, love feast around the Lord's table. We don't necessarily follow that specific tradition, but we do love feast a lot. Uh, we were certainly found in the good, you know, potluck tradition, and uh, that's, that's important. Um, but let's read uh, verse 17, and we'll take it to the end of the chapter here, make some comments, and we'll celebrate together. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. The instruction Paul had just shared was sort of the, the chaos that was occurring in the love feast and how there were, there were problems um, and, and also uh, uh, problems with relationship to authority, uh, the, the nature of the authority within the local church. And he had just instructed them about some of these matters. But giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear divisions exist among you. This coming together is the coming together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, but uh, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What do you have? Uh, do, you, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, 
He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, uh, we just sort of understood what that unworthy manner is, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. The body here is the church, the local New Testament church, of which the individuals are a member. So if you don't judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly... We would not be judged, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. In 1 Corinthians, or the book of 1 Corinthians, is a letter to a church that found itself in the most influential and cosmopolitan city of its day. Um, we would probably make a parallel with New York City. Uh, New York City, we could argue, is the cultural capital of the United States, or, and we certainly would say that Corinth was the cultural capital of Rome. Uh, however, this was a, a troubled church. Uh, the church had received the gospel, for sure. Paul always assumes faith um, of these people. He, he calls them brothers and sisters. He, in fact, calls them the church at Corinth. So he assumes faith. So they had received the gospel, but apparently they were not governed by it. They were not governed by it. In many practical ways, the church was governed by culturally derived mottos. You have the opportunity to read 1 Corinthians, you will hear some of those mottos come out. One of them, for example, in 1 Corinthians 7, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And that's in the context of married, being married. So that was a cultural uh, 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 motto that the church had sort of brought into their assembly and was sort of part of the warp and woof of what they kind of believed. So this church was sort of uh, really, um, in many practical ways, governed by these culturally derived mottos rather than mature reflection on the gospel and its implications for life. So in 1 Corinthians, each gospel corrective that Paul gives to this church radiates from really the last chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. Who can tell me what the theme of the last chapter, well, it's not the last chapter, it's chapter 15. What's the big point that Paul spends that whole chapter on? What is it? Good. It's uh, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we as well. So, so this really becomes the anchor point from which uh, the gospel correctives are given. It, uh, it's the bodily resurrection that serves as the rationale for the kind of corrections that the Corinthian church needed to make. Needed to make. So chapter 15 uh, it crescendos uh, in the bodily resurrection, much like Handel's Messiah crescendos in the Alleluia Chorus. 
The bodily resurrection is defined in the gospel, uh, necessitates in chapters 1 through 4. Remember, that's where Paul deals with Paul, Apollos, Peter. Remember that discussion? And they were following these, all these personalities. And uh, uh, so the bodily resurrection uh, uh, and, and the gospel that flows out of that or supports that necessitates unity rather than popularity. So that was the corrective. Unity rather than popularity in chapters 1 through 4. Uh, it's interesting to study sort of how Paul made a connection from bodily resurrection to needing unity rather than popularity. Uh, and if you want what, uh, the verses where he sort of unpacks that logic, I can give that to you, but we don't have time right now. Uh, but I would encourage you to study 1 Corinthians that way, and it will teach you how to think uh, really with, with gospel reality as you think in terms of, am I going to be unified in this church? Or am I going to not be unified? Am I going to sort of create a popularity contest? Or am I not going to create a popularity contest? Well, the bodily resurrection from the dead, your eternal position and condition speaks to an answer to that. In chapters 5 through 7, we have a new issue uh, that the bodily resurrection, the gospel uh, challenges, and that is uh, the issue of sexual and legal integrity rather than promiscuity and litigation. So there's something about the bodily resurrection of the believer, of the saint from the dead, and the gospel that supports that reality that militates against sexual promiscuity and litigation among God's people. Uh, you can look at, well, the verses that help to unpack how those things are connected. Um, in chapters 8 through 14, we have an extended section, uh, really, of points of knowledge that, that um, we have a, sort of a Christian liberty discussion there about meats, eating meats offered to idols. Uh, we have that section. And then we have uh, sort of the, the section with respect to um, uh, really coming to the end of how we gather together. Uh, so in, it's actually chapters 11, uh, sorry, from 8 all the way to the end of the book, two different matters, one dealing with meats offered to idols, and the section we're in right now, the section dealing with how it is that we gather together, and the points of contrast there is the bodily resurrection and the gospel that supports it argues that we are to love even in the context of specific points of knowledge. In other words, uh, Paul tries to unpack that there is a more excellent way. That even after all the knowledge points are, are brought up, all the arguments are made, the bodily resurrection and the gospel that supports it argues that there is a more excellent way. And you can read that really at the end, I believe, of chapter 12. Um, and really it supports. So love, love, love. Love, as we're going to see, is really the basis of Paul's argument here, right? It's love. It's being selfless. It's not being selfish. And this is what helps the church then be unified. We want to understand that the Lord's table is an ordinance and not a sacrament. Um, we have our religious friends would often look at what we're doing here as a sacrament. 
We need to understand that that's a technical term and that our religious friends use that because they believe that it actually communicates some kind of mystical grace that is required either for your salvation or your further sanctification. And if you don't get it, you won't be saved or you won't be sanctified in the way that you ought to be sanctified. That's the technical idea of a sacrament. We don't believe that here at Grace Church of Menor. This is not a sacrament. This is an ordinance. This is something we do in remembrance of, in remembrance of. So we would say this, and hopefully with the comments that I've made you would understand, there is no grace communicated at this table. We meet here simply to remember. Love, not grace, is the focus here this morning. Can I say that? Now, that's not to say that as we partake, we are not reflecting upon the amazing grace of the death and life of the person of Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. We certainly do have grace here at this table, but not grace in the sense that's being communicated in a mystical way that is required for your salvation or your sanctification. So hopefully you understand what I'm saying. But what is communicated here is love. Love. This is for the church. This truly is an opportunity to simply ask the question, how well are we loving each other? That's what the table is about. That's what it's about. As it's expressed in the, in the New Testament church. How are you doing? How are you loving each other? Husbands, how are you loving your wives? Wives, how are you loving your husbands? Life groups... How are you loving each other? That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. And we have some powerful inducement to understand uh, the degree of love that we're talking about and the extent of love that we are observing in the Lord's Supper. So there's three points I want to make here. Um, we really have in the Lord's Supper the gold standard of love in, in metaphor, if you will, in picture form. I remember as a kid, I, I loved object lessons. How many of you love that when the teacher would bring in all these elements? Yeah, Miriam, I know she loves teaching kids, and, and these things would happen. It would be, whoa. You know, I remember um, I always kid Pastor Mark because one night he preached and he had milk and he used glasses of milk to illustrate a point. I always call him the milkman, but I, I say that, uh, and the reality was is that object lesson really helped in getting the point that he was trying to make. This is an object lesson. This is a, this is a picture in that sense. Uh, it's much like the prophets. When you read them, and the prophet was told to, you know, burrow through the wall of the city and go in and do some things and the idea was that the hundred people that may observe him do that that, that was to be a message to them uh, obviously the Lord's table is a message to the church it's a message to the church it's a gold standard it's a gold standard of love and the first thing we want to recognize is that as the gold standard of love, the Lord's, table, the Lord's table exposes counterfeits. And we really have this in verses 17 through 22. 
The fact of the matter is, is that the church, when she comes to the Lord's table, if she's not careful, she can in fact meet not always for the better, but for the worse. And that was what was happening in Corinth here. You know, uh, this, this amazing gold standard, it's much like when you were a child, and uh, I think when I was in kindergarten, you had letters, you know, that they weren't fully written. They had blanks in between the lines, and the idea was you would trace over the letters, right? And as you traced over those letters, one of two things were very quickly apparent. Either you were doing well, or like me, it was chicken scratch, and you had to do better, okay? And that's really what we have at the Lord's Supper. We have this profound demonstration of love. Profound. Infinite and eternal love that's indescribable, and really... Uh, is incomprehensible. This is, this is the letter dotted L-O-V-E. And the question is, as you come in here to draw over those letters, how are you doing? How are you doing? This amazing gold standard of love. Is it today? Not for the better, but for the worse? You know, the beautiful thing is, is that Instantly, it can be. And next time we gather together, it absolutely certainly should be. Because we have that capacity. Remember, there's no condemnation. There's no grace communicated here at this table. There's nothing that's necessary to your Christian life here. No, that's all been secured in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, his cross work. This is the dotted letters. And it's simply asking us a profound question. So we hear that, see that the Lord's table highlighted that divisions existed. We hear, see here that the Lord's table uh, not only uh, uh, demonstrated that divisions existed in the Church of Corinth, but that there were cliques, which is sort of divisions on steroids. Divisions is when individuals have issues. Cliques is when there is a group who sort of hold a position and they're going to lock arms and hold it. Apparently both these things were going on in Corinth. There were divisions and there were cliques. And, and, um, and, and when, when, when you, Paul's whole point is when you come before the Lord's table and you see this infinite, eternal, incomprehensible expression of love, it is absolutely unbelievable to some degree that we would have any divisions or any cliques, right? That's, that's essentially Paul's train of thought here. And it's true. It's right. Um, and it ought to be instructive for us. We also see here that illustrate... Uh, the Lord's table can highlight the simple fact that there is hypocrisy and duplicity uh, in, in our church. In verse 21, there is a, there is sort of a problem of class distinction. Uh, the Lord's table became the occasion to make those class distinctions clear and apparent. Evidently, the rich would bring in things and they would eat. The poor would not have things to bring in and they wouldn't have much to eat. Some were being drunk. Some were, were going thirsty. They, they had their, there's no commonality here. So there's a hypocrisy and a duplicity. Hypocrisy is really the, the fundamental em, enemy of the Christian experience, isn't it? And we're all hypocrites, I mean, to some degree. I mean, that's, that's why we have this, the whole nature of sanctification is progressive. If that's 
the pattern, if that's the paradigm, then you and I are hypocrites because we're constantly in a state of moving away from our self-centered commitments to commitments that the Lord Jesus Christ is encouraging us to be committed to. Hypocrisy, that's sort of how it's popularly thrown around. What Paul's talking about, however, is more when it's a habit and pattern and settled disposition of your life. That's hypocrisy. When you're when you are shouldering on the shoulder, when you're, when you're burdening the shoulders of others with burdens you're unwilling to carry yourself, to carry yourself. You're expecting other people to be holy and right and good and to treat you nice. And you are probably not treating other people nice all the time and, uh, and demanding that, you know, being kind of stinky about it. Um, so that's what Paul's talking about here. So, so the first thing is a gold standard of love. The Lord's table can expose counterfeits. And, and it's okay if it exposes you. And what I mean by counterfeit, we want, don't want to take that in its absolute sense. Remember, Paul believed these people to be saved, born-again people. So the expectation was that they would come to the Lord's table and go, <coughs> How in the world could I be divided or, or have something against Ben Richard when Jesus loved me so much and he died on the cross for me who was a sinner, chiefest of sinners. Right? I mean, that's the idea. It's like, it's a wake-up call. It's like, oh, how can, I, how can I be, you know, embittered against my spouse or embittered against my children or children embittered against my, my parents? How can that be? Embitterment is, is, is incompatible with the table. It's incompatible. Or circumstances in your life, or perhaps some of you, God himself, as we reflect on his sovereign will. The reason why Paul can say, make sure that no root of bitterness ever springs up, because you actually have the possibility of eviscerating that root of bitterness at the table where you learn of God's infinite, amazing love and the degree and the extent to which he took care of your issue. And we want to sort of, rep we don't want to sort of, we want to work hard to replicate that. So when we call it, say, counterfeit, we're not talking about it in an absolute fashion here. We're talking about it in a moment in time that by God's grace, we're going to get right. And we're going to move forward. We're going to walk forward progressively. And if the roots are very deep and need some specific help, we're going to pursue that in our pastors. And we're, going to, we're going to work that out. So number two, not only does it expose, but as a gold standard of love, the Lord's table standardizes the core commitments of the church. And this is a beautiful thing. Here's where we really begin to understand what church is. What, what are we doing here in the 21st century anyway? The first thing it standardizes is the practice of the church. We're a communal body. When we come together, we are working out our salvation in the presence of one another. Does that make sense? We're communal. This is not anything that we have the authority or the ability or the right to do apart from the assembly of God's people. We gather together to be confronted about the question of love and how we're doing in that. It's the standard for that. It standardizes the source of the power of the church, the very metaphor itself where we ingest, if you will, these elements. The picture is as we're taking Jesus way deep down inside of us 
We love for him to operate there. We long for him to take control of every aspect there. That's what we want. That's why we're taking these elements. That's the source of power. It's Jesus in you, the hope of glory. That's the source. So it standardizes uh, 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 the practice, the source. It standardizes the proclamation of the church. We are proclaiming his death. His death. At the Lord's Supper, we proclaim his death. Now, death, I believe, here is a part of the whole. It's a piece of the whole. So the whole is the gospel, which is the death, burial, and what? Resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We proclaim the whole gospel. This is a technical term here. This is a mirrorism. This is a part of the whole. So we're proclaiming this amazing truth. We proclaim the gospel in all of its stunning beauty. It is true at the table, we begin at the beginning. The beginning is the death. We begin there. We never forget from whence we have come. So I tried to write a sentence here. So, to try to capture this idea. The lofty position that the gospel gives us it had given the church at Corinth a lofty position, an amazingly gifted church. But our lofty position can never be in any way, shape, or form, ever possibly in time or eternity, ever be construed that God, in any way, shape, or form, ever got any kind of any sort of a deal when he got me. That's what the table is teaching me. That's the conviction of the table. Getting me required death. Death of his precious one and only son. I proclaim this truth about myself when I partake. That's what I do. Ours is not and can never be a self-confidence. Rather, it must always be a substitutionary confidence. Ours is not and can never be a presumption of intrinsic self-worth with a demand for justice. Rather, it must always be a convictional, deep, intrinsic humility and gratitude that justice was paused for me. <laughs> that it was nuanced for me. I didn't get what was fair. I didn't get what was fair. I get heaven, not hell. Wow! That's what it is. Jesus' death defines in no uncertain terms what the disposition, and mark it down, those of you who are discipling disciplees, disposition is critical. When you're trying to determine if somebody's truly born again or on their way or in process, this is, what, this is our interest. Do they understand the beginning, the death? Thirdly, the gold standard of love, the Lord's table, personalizes responsibility of each individual in our church. And yes, we're communal, but the Holy Spirit drives it right down. Anyone can be guilty of sinning against this amazing love. It says each one must examine, and we must examine ourselves. What we must examine about ourselves is this. Am I judging the body rightly? Let me give you a couple different translations. The new, the NET Bible says, For the one who eats and drinks without careful regard for the body that is the church. 
The NIV says this, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, without thinking about, okay, what are my relationships like? What are my relationships like? The NLTV, here's, here's the, uh, a paraphrase, if you will. For if you eat and drink, if you eat, I'm sorry, for if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, there it is, honor, discerning, careful regard. Our Nasby says, judging it rightly. That's what we do here. First with our spouse, with our children, and then with our congregation at large. Do I honor them? Do I, do I, uh, do I carefully regard them? Am I discerning? Do I care? Am I interested? And this is what the table tells us. So this morning we have seen that the love expressed at the Lord's table, it exposes counterfeits, standardizes the core values of the church, and it also helps me to understand my own personal responsibility to honor the Lord's church uh, simply due to the fact that his investment, right, cost him infinitely and eternally. So we're going to ask our pianist. I don't know if Jacob does this. And I haven't often been in here. So if I'm really messing up, Jacob, I apologize. But if Jacob could come up and maybe, I know, I, you know, I've seen him play quite a bit. He plays at my son's choir, so I'm assuming he can do this. Uh, but he's going to uh, open up to an appropriate hymn, Jacob. Maybe uh, Amazing Grace or something. And... Uh, while he's looking that up, uh, I would ask you what, would you, what would be appropriate while Jacob plays a verse in preparation for the Lord's Supper? I think what would be appropriate is to thank God for this amazing gold standard of love. I think it would be appropriate to, to think about your spouse, your children, the people sitting next to you out in live stream and in the auditorium, uh, the, the lobby and upstairs. Uh, we, off, we, we have a lot of reasons to divide us today. Uh, we don't want to be co-opted. The Lord's table says don't be co-opted into the divisions. It says be unified. Love discern, care, honor. And it would be appropriate for you to pray about these matters. So I'm going to ask Jacob if he could play a, a verse and then we'll partake together. of God said. Amen. So let's go ahead and take the, the wafer out of the top. I'd encourage you to, to break that wafer if you can.
know that Jesus broke the bread. I think that's a critical part of this amazing, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible love that we're seeking to replicate every day. And I'll just read here. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul then tells us in the same way he took the cup. So if you want to prepare that. Paul writes this. He says, in the same way, Jesus took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow for a word of prayer together as we close. Lord Jesus, uh, this morning we stand before the gold standard of love. We thank you that unlike any other faith community that's talked about in the pages of Scripture, the church owns the cross. We don't look forward to it. We remember it. We thank you that... Lord Jesus, you you died in the expression of infinite, eternal, incomprehensible love. The just became the justifier. He who knew no sin became sin. You bore the very wrath of the infinite, eternal God. a, A justice that required payment from an infinite, eternal being because, dear Father, we confess our offense before you was infinite and eternal. Lord Jesus, you are our only hope. You loved us in in an incomprehensible way, and you came and you actively obeyed the Father, and then you bore the weight of the cross in its agony and anguish, and we, we confess, Lord, any kind of offense that we may hold or demand we might make of one another it should appropriately melt away at the foot of the cross And Lord we want to get better at covering things in love Lord we thank you for the process of caring for our offenses but even as we do that we want to do so with humility the love of restoration or the desire of restoration so we pray Lord in a day and age which uh, the world is giving us all kinds of reasons to, to, to separate, Lord, to, to, to be apart. 
We thank you that in Christ we are together as a body. And we thank you that as we observe the Lord's Supper, even though we may not be in one another's presence, we can work hard at assuming the best, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, and enduring all things. So we rejoice in that. We pray you'd help us to get really good at that. And we thank you for the pandemic because it's teaching us <laughs> that we have a bit of a way to go with relationship to that. So Lord, we love you. You're so special to us. We confess that anew and afresh. And, and we're special to one another because you live in us. And I pray that you would help us to, to continue on, to continue to be the lighthouse for this community that you want us to be each one of us would show the love of Jesus Christ and show the love that we have for one another. We know that that has an evangelistic outreach. So Lord, help us with that. So all these things, we gather them up, we lay them at your feet. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.